I want to ask you a question, though. Who's the best friend you've ever had? I mean, when you think about your life, maybe somebody you were friends with when you were a child, or maybe somebody who was there for you in a hard time, you may be fortunate. Your best friend could be somebody sitting here in this room. You may be thinking, that guy, that woman right there, that's the person I value the most. But what makes someone a good friend? You know, there's, the truth is, a lot of us use the word friend in the wrong way. A lot of us have people we call friends that aren't really friends, especially you teenagers. I want you to hear what I say next. But all of us, you can, you can fall into a trap of saying, well, this person hangs out with me a lot, so they're my friend. And some friends aren't worth having. Some friends uh, drag us down. They criticize us because it makes them feel better. They teach us bad habits. They encourage us to follow them into bad decisions. They drag us into their world of negativity and, and complaining and hatred of others. See, the standard, I believe, of a true friend is this. Proverbs twenty-seven seventeen says, As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. That means that just like two pieces of metal can sharpen each other, a true friend is someone who makes you a better person. And if you really want to hear how good your friends are, talk to someone who knows you well, your parents, your loved ones, and say, do you like that I hang out with this person? Does this person make me a better person? Are you glad when I'm with them? See, a true friend is someone who you're going to learn from them. You're going to grow from them. They're not always going to tell you what you want to hear. They're going to challenge you at times. Their example will guide you. They'll be a person who is strong in areas where you're weak. They'll encourage you and build you up. You'll be full of joy because of them. Some of us are fortunate to have those kinds of friends. I'm fortunate to have married that kind of a friend. Those are the kinds of friends we need. And that's one reason why God created the church. You can find those kinds of friends within the family of God. And here we are, we're in the middle of this series about living a contagious life and how our calling is not just to get up on Sunday mornings and come to church and the rest of the week try to live good moral lives. That's fine. But our job is to be contagious. Our job is to is to influence those around us and to change the atmosphere of the people around whom we live through our influence and our love and to lead people to salvation. And we've talked about how there's a lot of different ways to do it. That's part of this study is all of us have our different personality types and, and your personality type has its own strengths in this, in this endeavor. But here's the thing. Nearly every time I've read something. I've read a lot of books about sharing your faith. I've heard a lot of sermons about sharing your faith. I've been guilt-tripped many times about sharing faith. And almost always it's about, hey, here's, here's how to lead someone to Christ in five minutes. A total stranger go from just meeting them to them praying the prayer in five minutes. And that's fine. And sometimes that happens. But I believe most of the time it's something different. I believe most of the time, someone coming to faith is a result of a long-term relationship where they get to observe your life over the period of years. You get to pour in and invest into them. In fact, let's do a quick survey. If you think of the one person who was most instrumental in you becoming a Christian, if you're a Christian here today, who was the one person who you could say, that, that person more than anybody else influenced me to where I was ready to accept Christ. For me, it was my mom. Although my dad, my grandparents, my Sunday school teachers, others poured into me, my mom was the main one. Now, if you're thinking of that, that one person who was most influential, let me ask you something. Was that person a parent or a friend or another relative or, or someone you knew well, a coach or a teacher or a Sunday school leader? If it's someone who knew you previously, would you raise your hand right now? 
All right, very good. Now, if on the other hand, it was a gospel tract you picked up off the ground or a commercial you saw on TV or a bumper sticker or a billboard or a Gideon Bible you read in a hotel room or an evangelist you saw on TV or a perfect stranger who just came up and started talking to you, if it was someone you never knew before that led you to Christ, raise your hand. All right, a couple. But you see my point? And today, when people are so much less likely to have knowledge of Scripture and a respect for God's Word, it's even more prevalent that we will have to lead people to Christ with our lives by investing with them over a period of years, maybe even decades. And that's the story of Matthew here. This is, this is a story of relational faith sharing. Transformation through lifetime. So Matthew uh, is the author of the first book of the, of the New Testament. He's one of the 12 disciples, but believe it or not, the story we're going to look at today is the only story about him in the entire Bible. The only one where he's the main character. And we know it from this account. We also know it from Luke and from Mark. It's, it's mentioned three times in Scripture. And Luke gives us some different details than Matthew. So I'm going to weave those two together. But first, let's go ahead and read this story. Chapter 9. Verse 9, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come to call the right, not I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So Luke tells us that Matthew's name was actually Levi. He was born Levi, which indicates that his parents were patriotic Israelites because Levi was one of the names of the twelve patriarchs, one of the names of the twelve tribes. It would be like me naming a son today George Washington Berger or. Benjamin Franklin Berger. Um, so it's ironic that giving, being given such a grand and patriotic name, Levi grew up to be a traitor to his people because Levi was a tax collector. Now these days, we don't really like the IRS in general. It's not our favorite government agency, but at least they collect taxes for our government, our country. Levi collected taxes for the Roman Empire which had invaded, conquered, and was now occupying and oppressing his own people. So imagine, imagine Russia invades the United States. It's not going to happen, don't worry. But let's imagine that it happens. And suddenly we've got a Russian soldier on every street corner. And they're, they put their puppets in charge of, of every government agency. Now imagine your neighbor who you know comes and knocks on your door one day and says, hey, by the way, I'm gathering taxes for Mother Russia. Pay up. He's not going to be your favorite person, is he? You're not going to like him much. And, and then when he builds a massive mansion down the street from you that's twice the size of your house, you're really not going to like him because you're going to recognize he's not just collecting taxes for Russia. He's gathering more than he has to so he can skim off the top. And that's exactly what Levi did. And so Levi was hated by his community but was very successful. And here he is sitting on the road into Capernaum where Jesus lived, gathering taxes. Essentially, he was a toll booth operator, but for the Roman Empire. And Jesus walks up and says, follow me. Quite a sales pitch, huh? Follow me. 
And here's what Levi does. The first thing he does is throw a party. The first thing he does is invite all of his Sabbath-abstaining, foul-mouthed, hard-drinking, tax-collecting, greedy-as-all-get-out friends and says, there's someone I want you to meet. And then somewhere along the way, he changes his name to Matthew. In fact, when he writes the gospel, the only story about him, he chooses to call himself Matthew, not Levi. His new name, not his old name. The name Matthew means God's gift. Gift of God. It's just my personal belief that Matthew took that name because he said, I'm a new person and my new reality, my new life is a a total gift from God. I didn't earn it. But he wanted his friends to have that gift too. And he invited them in. Now, that is God's original plan for how the gospel spreads. You know, we live in a great age when there's all kinds of new techniques for spreading the word, and it's great. All of them are wonderful, but God's original plan still works. God's original plan still says, just like our our new members this morning got baptized, they're testifying, the Lord has changed me. That's still God's plan, that He changes us and the world sees the change in us, and they want to change too. We are the light of the world, Jesus said in Matthew 5. We are the salt of the earth. Salt and light change things. I'll tell you another scripture that I love. It's 2 Corinthians 2.14. It says, But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of Him. I love that image. Through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of Him. You know how powerful smell is, right? A good smell is is a very, very attractive thing. And and if you think about your favorite smells, if you're a guy especially, I guarantee it's food-related, right? So, you know, if you're a lady and you want to attract a guy, you rub a little bacon behind your ears, right? Maybe not. But, you know, my favorite smells are all food-related smells. We're coming up on Thanksgiving when I'm going to be in a house. It's actually going to be my house this time where I'm going to smell some incredible things. My wife's going to make this sweet potato casserole that smells incredible. We're going to have bread and we're going to have, you know, a dressing that smells great. That turkey's going to smell great. My personal favorite smell in the whole wide world is barbecue. So good piece of meat, smoking a long time over a good set of coals. That is a good smell. Do an experiment sometime. If you work in an office, right, you know, schedule it right before lunch hour. So people are, are hungry, but they're not, they can't leave yet. You go get lunch early and you bring back a bag of something, just anything. I don't care what it is, but if you walk into that office, you'll see prairie dogs popping up over the cubicles, right? What you got in there? You going to eat all that? It's amazing. Think about it. That food is small in proportion to the size of the room, but it transforms the atmosphere of the room. In the same way, the way God designed us, once we're redeemed, if we follow Him and let the Holy Spirit lead us, we will have a disproportionate impact. Christians were meant to be a minority. We will always be a minority. And yet, we will impact our environment disproportionately if we live the way we're supposed to live will transform the environment of wherever we are, whatever school we go to, whatever workplace we work at, whatever neighborhood we live in, people will be drawn to us and through us to the Lord who has transformed us because we spread everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of Him. Now, how does that work? How do we do that? What do we need to do to be more fragrant? Three things that we see right here in the story of Matthew. Number one, we need to stop being so religious. 
You like that one? Stop being so religious. And I don't mean stop going to church. Because God created the church for a reason. God created worship for a reason. He told us in, in Hebrews 10.25, don't stop getting together uh, among believers. You need one another. You need to be among your family. You need to sing praises corporately. You need to have the example of fellow believers in the encouragement and the accountability. But the problem is, the problem with religion is the most religious people alive in Jesus' day were the ones who opposed him. And here, Matthew gets saved, and he invites all his friends to meet Jesus, and all the Pharisees can think is, how could you eat with those men? Because you see, eating back then wasn't what it is today. As Americans, we treat eating as a very utilitarian thing. Now, we're obsessed with food, don't get me wrong, but we want to eat fast. We want to get in, we want to get out, we want to go home. I guarantee if you go out to eat after lunch today, after church today, you're going to be impatient for that food to come. You want to get out of there in an hour or less. It wasn't that way in the Middle East. In the Middle East, food was a very communal thing. Even if you were just having a, a loaf of bread and a few vegetables, you dined with people you loved and you took a long time. It was a time for sharing. And so to eat with someone meant, you're my people. I approve of you. And so for Jesus to eat a meal with these tax collectors, these hated people, these traitors, these horrible scoundrels was him saying, I approve of you. I accept you. And for the Pharisees, for the religious people of the day, their idea of goodness and morality was you keep away from bad people. In fact, that's how you measure how good you are is how, how diligent you are about keeping away from bad people and bad influences. And Jesus said the opposite. He said, no, nah, I'm a doctor. I've got the good news. I've got what will make them well. How dare I keep it from them? No, the measure of a good person, Jesus said, is not keeping away from bad people. The measure of a good person is transforming bad people. And we're all bad people at, at heart until someone comes and brings us the good news that saves us. See, when Matthew's life got changed, he didn't do what a Pharisee would do. He didn't say, I'm, I'm done with you people. He said, well, come with me. I'll bring you where I've where I've gone. And the problem with us is we get saved. And it's just the way the church trains us. I'm sorry, it just is. We get saved and we do what Pharisees would do and not what Matthew did. We immediately say goodbye to our non-Christian friends and we insert ourselves into the Christian bubble where we have our own music and our own lingo and everything is, is Christian. We don't have any influences that aren't. And boy, that makes us better people, right? Well, Sort of like we're the salt of the earth, but we're still in the shaker. Having a good time in that shaker, but we're really not affecting people the way we should. You know, I have to admit, this is a hard thing for me because I work at a church. I don't know if you all know that, but I work here. I work at a church, and, and so it's hard for me to meet non-Christians. I mean, I keep trying to witness to Christian Nance, but he says he's saved. So it, it, it makes life difficult. I have to be very intentional. That's one of the reasons I'm on Facebook a lot. I, I interact with, with non-Christians there. I, 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 have to, I have to make sure that I'm, I'm, I know my neighbors, the people that live on my street, friends of my kids and their families, um, people that, that go to the sporting events that I go to, which because it's University of Houston, often they're angry people. So I have opportunities there. <laughs> you know, the question you need to ask yourself is, where do I interact with non-Christians? 
Is it at your job? Is it, is it in your neighborhood? Is it among your kids' friends and their families? Is it if you play golf, do you, do you interact with non-Christians there? Do you, are you a member of a health club? That's a good reason to be a part of a health club and actually go and meet people who don't know the Lord. Your barbershop, out on the lake, where do you interact with non-Christians? Second thing, second way to be fragrant. We have to be different. We have to be distinct. We have to be unlike other people. There's this great story in Chuck Holson's book, Loving God. Mickey, Mickey Cohen was a famous gangster in the 50s, 40s and 50s in Los Angeles. And during the late 1940s, 1949, Billy Graham had this epic crusade. It's actually what put Billy Graham on the map as far as becoming a household name in Los Angeles. It lasted eight weeks. And all the Hollywood stars came and heard Billy Graham speak. Well, Mickey Cohen, the gangster, showed up at a crusade. And he was impressed. This guy can draw a crowd. He can speak well. I like his message. A friend who was a former mobster and who, who had come to know Christ actually came and saw Mickey at the crusade. And later he shared the gospel with Mickey. And Mickey prayed and prayed the prayer. And he started going around saying, yeah, I'm a Christian now. And everybody was excited. He went and had his picture made with Billy Graham. It appeared in the newspaper. And then people started noticing, well, Mickey says he's a Christian, but he's still acting the way he used to act. He's still acting like a mobster. And they said, Mickey, you're supposed to be born again. How, how come you haven't changed? And he said, I don't get it. There's Christian athletes and Christian politicians and Christian movie stars. Why can't there be a Christian gangster? And he was serious. And once he found out that following Christ doesn't just mean calling yourself a Christian and going to church once in a while. It actually means repentance. It actually means I want to die to my old self and I want to become someone new. Through his help, I want to become someone completely different. Well, he didn't want any part of that. Contrast that to Matthew. Matthew heard Jesus say, follow me, and he dropped it all. Now, you can say that about all the disciples. They all walked away from their professions and their hometowns to follow Jesus, and that's great. But nothing against Peter and, and Andrew and James and John. They were fishermen. They left a lot, but you can go back to fishing if Jesus doesn't work out. Matthew was risking everything. Because once you drop your, your, your position as a tax gatherer, there's a whole line of other people who want that salary. Matthew was leaving it all, and he did. And he was distinct, and it had an impact on others. So the, the second question you needed to ask yourself is, what is there that is different about me because of Jesus? What is there about me that shows Christ-likeness that would be attractive to others? Because I got to tell you, sometimes we as Christians are different in ways that aren't attractive. Sometimes we're different because we're self-righteous. Sometimes we're different because we're judgmental. Sometimes we're different just because we're stinking weird, you know? And there's nothing holy about weirdness. Arbitrary weirdness is one of the least attractive things about religious people. You can, you can tweet that if you want to. But let me just give you an example. A lot of folks, when they first come to know Christ, one of the first things they say is, well, i got to stop using bad language. And you're right. I mean, when you think about it, cussing is one of the dumbest things we do. I mean, we use these infantile, juvenile words just, to get, just for shock value. And once you come to know Christ, you're like, no, 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 I need to stop that. And, and that's true. And I can preach you a good sermon about why that's a necessary step. But I can also tell you, and if right now you're in the middle of that struggle to overcome profanity, I, I'm not trying to discourage you. I just want to tell you, that's one of the easier battles you'll face as a Christian. 
I know it's not easy. It doesn't seem easy now, but it's relatively simple. What's hard is things like learning to love others. That's the real change. Because if you go around saying doggone it or shoot instead of the alternative, people will probably notice, but they won't think anything of it. But if you actually love others. read a story about a man whose wife had died very suddenly, and he was devastated, as you can imagine. And one, one night, late at night, he just went for a walk. He couldn't sleep. He couldn't get his grief off his mind. He went for a walk. There was a river near his house, and he was walking along the bank of that river, and he heard someone behind him, and as he turned, he saw there was a man walking just a few steps behind him that he recognized in the moonlight as one of his neighbors. And these two didn't know each other well. They'd, they'd spoken. They'd shared names and information. That's about it. And he kept walking, and after a while, he realized that neighbor was walking just to keep an eye on him. He thought, well, he must think I'm going to throw myself into the river or something. But they didn't say anything. They just kept walking. And then soon the sun started to rise. And as the sun rose, the neighbor caught up to him and said, I'm I'm sorry, I don't want to bother you, but since it's morning, do you want to get some breakfast? And he brought him back to his house, and, and the neighbor brewed him some coffee and fixed him some breakfast, and they sat down and they ate. And as they were eating, the neighbor said, listen, I don't want to impose, but I know you've been through a lot. Would you mind if I prayed for you? And the man said, no, that'd be fine. And he prayed over him. And after breakfast, that was it. They, he went home and, and nothing was said. But, but not long after that, that man, that grief-stricken man became a Christian. He gave his life to Christ because he said later on that the turning point in my life was the night that guy walked behind me all the way down that riverbank, and I knew, I knew this guy doesn't know me well, but he's choosing to love me. He cho- he's choosing to care for me. And I want, I want something in my life that can cause me to love others that way. And that's why I became a believer. That's the kind of different we need to be. We need to be the kind of different that people say, you know, when I first met you, I thought you were strange because you believe stuff I don't believe, but nobody ever really loved me the way you love me. Nobody was ever really kind to me like you've been kind to me. Third thing, we need to be intentional. Be intentional. And, and here's where, you know, growing up, I, I'd always hear people, especially as I got to be a young adult, who would say, well, I'm not much for sharing my faith verbally. I believe in lifestyle evangelism. And what they mean by that is I just want to live such a good and exemplary life that through my example, people will come to know Christ. And I think people who say that have the right motives, but I, I think they're wrong. Because you don't have to be a Christian to be a good person. And there's no reason for someone else to assume that it is Christ in your life that's making you live such an exemplary life unless you tell them. And Matthew, when he walked away from his tax collector's booth, he didn't say to himself, this is all I need to do. Man, now that I've dropped this and followed Christ, all my friends are going to follow in my example. No, he took an intentional step. said, I'm going to throw a big party. It's going to be expensive. And I'm going to invite all my friends. Jesus, will you be there? And Jesus said, of course I will. He took an intentional step. The question is, what step will you take? Matthew didn't drop his friends. He brought Jesus into those relationships. The question you need to ask yourself with every relationship you have, and by the way, you don't have any random relationships. Everybody who's a part of your life is a part of your life because God brought them there to encourage you, but also for you to influence them. From the the most obscure acquaintance to your best friend. Your relationships are your biggest capital. What are you going to do with those? So the question you need to ask, you and I need to ask is, 
How can I bring Jesus into this relationship? My relationship with this person or that person. My friend, my neighbor, my coworker, my boss. Yeah, I bet your boss needs Jesus. Even my enemy. How am I going to bring Jesus into this relationship? And it could be, it could be during a time of crisis, you're the one that shows up and says, what can I do for you? It could be like that story just now. You know that they're going through something and you go up and you just say, how can I pray for you? I've asked that question many, many times of strangers and friends, and only once or twice have I ever gotten any, any lip back about it. And even then, the people said, okay, you can pray for me. Everybody else, even unbelievers, they're like, yeah, yeah, I'm glad you'll, you'll pray for me. It may, be, it may be that something happens at the church that you're like, you know, I've been investing in this person so long, and I've never really talked to them about Christ, but I bet they would enjoy this event, whether it's you know, the, the Christmas downtown or whether it's the, the outdoor sports banquet or, or, or a kid's event or a youth event. It could be something completely surprising happens. You've been friends with this person for years and suddenly they start thinking about spiritual issues and because they know you're a Christian and because they know your integrity and that you're a real person and not a phony, they're going to come to you with those questions because you've invested in them. How are you going to bring Jesus into your relationship? See, the best friend you've ever had, I asked you that question at the beginning, who's your best friend? The best friend you've ever had? I've got an answer for that one. John 15, 13, this is the words of Jesus the night before his death. He said, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Jesus is the best friend you've ever had because Jesus gave up everything that he had so you could have it. Jesus paid the price for your salvation. If a friend is someone who makes you a better person, Jesus did that to the ultimate. He changed your nature so you can become just like him. And I know you're not there yet. Trust me, I've been here a year and a half. I know you're not there yet. And I'm not either. But if you're following him, you're on your way. And the really exciting thing is, that through your influence, as people watch you being transformed and you being intentional and you loving them in His name, you could see over the course of your lifetime, dozens, maybe hundreds of people come to that same knowledge and that same faith and that same transformation. And that's our job. And what a great job it is.